Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Welcome, Michael. Hi, Terry. Today, we are going to be covering four episodes in our Engendered Reflections, episode 42 with Amanda Laird on menstrual equity as a human right, episode 43 with Professor Spring Cooper on the importance of sexual health and agency, episode 44 with Georgie Barden on fertility literacy as a form of reproductive choice and freedom, and finally, episode 45 with Nicole Perry on being a feminist therapist. This group of uh, episodes is pretty interesting because it, me as a male may not necessarily have a lot of these issues, like especially with uh, Amanda Lurch, starting with the first one, talking about menstruation, while it doesn't directly relate to something that, that I experience, because of the population is just half of the people are, are men and half of them are women, I, I feel like I need to know these things. And I do have conversations with women where there's so many things that even before this podcast, I didn't know. Like, for example, I didn't know what a diva cup was. And it was something that I was like, wait, what? what is that? How does it work? I And especially um, later on uh, during this, this, this particular podcast, she mentioned where uh, toxic shock syndrome was mentioned, which is something that is fatal to people that aren't aware of where you can get this uh, disease from. And um, looking at the notes later on after the episode, I was able to find out a little bit more about what it is and how it can be caused by uh, staph bacteria. So I do think it's really informative for anybody, not just for females. I agree. And that's why these series of episodes, which fall under the category of body literacy, is not gendered. And with regard to menstruation, Amanda's book, Heavy Flow, Breaking the Curse of Menstruation, that just came out earlier this spring, which I read and I, and I loved, is very groundbreaking uh, in the sense that she's very, very clear in that book how menstrual literacy and body literacy for women is so clearly tied to our reproductive health and our reproductive freedom and ultimately equality for women because the body and how we have been controlled through the female body through history in terms of how we've been cast as dirty or other really reinforces so many of the gendered stereotypes that women are uh, subject to in society and ultimately cast us in a subordinate role to men. Absolutely. It just the misunderstanding of what this is, is something that it's important for men to know. So we, we're not disgusted, put off by something like, so it's just a normal everyday part of life. It's sort of like the speaking about sex, right? Where there's this fear of like, oh, we shouldn't be talking about it because it's icky or it's 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 something that that makes you uncomfortable. But I, it, it, it's so extremely helpful, especially if you are teaching it to children or young adults in order for them to understand it. Like that, menstruation is something that I think is really important for us to talk about in general in, as a society. And also for heterosexual relationships or anybody who's in a relationship where the body 
can be subject to pregnancy. That's something that in terms of the recent abortion regulations that are happening all across the country requires some sort of literacy around the female body and menstruation to be able to make proper policy. Right, to be able to address these. Yeah, and I think um, even just the access to period products, we discussed with Amanda in that episode the various documentaries that are out now on menstruation. And one of the key aspects of why menstruation and menstrual equity is a human rights issue is because in so many parts of the world, there are young girls who don't have access to menstrual products, period poverty, it's called. Right. And they're unable because of shame and culture to go to school and get an education. Right. And so those girls are left out a large part of the population. And in those countries and cultures, certainly all of them are mm -hmm. left out of the education system and being able to be independent, self-sufficient, which ultimately is the key to being able to be free and make choices for yourself, especially if as an adult, you're in a bad situation or a bad relationship, you won't be able to leave and have that choice. Right. Now, that is something that you mentioned that's happening in other countries. One of the other things that you brought up in that episode was the fact that the, the Medicare system and how it may misdiagnose uh, certain women issues, and especially more likely when it's uh, towards certain populations than others. You mean the, the issue of the racial equity gap in yes. medical care for, for women? For, for women, right. Where uh, women aren't diagnosed and treated equally throughout all, all, uh, gen uh, sorry, throughout all races, right? So uh, there was a study that specifically stated that there are certain screenings that are more likely to be administered to white women than to black women. And um, as a result, you have a lot of uh, misdiagnoses in the black uh, women population. So that's something that we really have to pay attention to. I'm glad you brought that up, Michael, because that actually exacerbates an already existing gender gap called the care gap. So the care gap applies where women in general are less believed or disbelieved when they're going to seek medical attention and they're not getting taken seriously. Their pain or their um, symptoms are dismissed and not get given the same level of attention and maybe testing as a man would. And so then to exacerbate that, there's then the racial gap and uh, racial care gap and and. Uh, another layer to exacerbate the, the gender care gap. Leading up to this uh, recording, I actually had a conversation with someone else who told me that they had pain in their leg and it, was, it turned out that there was a blood clot and she was able to read up on it and understand what's going on with her. And she kept on telling the physician, like, this is what the issue is, but the doctor consistently ignored her. And after a while, she, he, he, it was a blood cut and it was a life-threatening condition, which luckily for her, she was able to speak up for herself and was somehow able to get that addressed, which is unfortunate because uh, my sister's friend died at the age of, I believe, 19 because of the same issue. It was a blood clot. She went to the doctor. She said she felt pain and it was very strong, very strong. The doctor said, no, don't worry. Just, just, just suck it up. It's normal for because of the medicine that she was taking. She was very quiet. I'm not going to blame her for, for being timid or not speaking up as much as the other woman that I spoke to. 
But as a result, she died. She, she died at a very young age. That's tragic. Do you know if the medical establishment that treated her ultimately was held accountable? Was there a lawsuit? Um, I don't really, I didn't follow, again, this was my sister's friend. And uh, if I were to ask my sister, she probably would know more, but I, I did not know her. What about the friend currently? Like, at what point did the doctor finally respond and do some testing to confirm that it was a blood clot? Well, she she looked it up on Google and looked at her symptoms and she felt that it was that she needed blood thinners. So she constantly pushed and told the doctor, I need blood thinners because this is, these are my symptoms. This is what I'm feeling. Eventually, the doctor did provide her with uh, the blood thinners and she, and the issue was addressed, although she's continuing these, these issues because she has, she has a, a whole series of so issues. So the doctor actually never diagnosed her as having a blood clot. It just. Yes. Now, now afterward, yes. That sounds really very fortunate for her. Yeah, it's very fortunate. So when you say that women aren't believed, I, I completely understand. And then there's also how culture contributes to it. Amanda and I talked about various examples in culture, in media, and the ways in which both of them conspire in some ways to continue these stereotypes of menstruation as taboo. Right. And one example that Amanda gave was Rupi Carr, the uh, Instagram menstruation photos. She's a, an artist and she an activist. One. Yeah. And um, the photos were taken down. Yeah, and very often, not just these menstruation photos, but photos of women breastfeeding, obviously. We've talked about that in the past. We have. Photos of women giving birth. So these are natural things that happen to the human body. They are somehow... Do you think they're somehow sexualized, or is it that people feel afraid of talking about a taboo subject? Well, I think... That's a good point because, yes, they are sexualized and because of our society and our approach toward sexual health and agency, which is the next episode with Dr. Spring Cooper, uh, we don't have enough literacy around sex education and we haven't normalized talking about the body in a way that is just embracing of natural bodily functions rather than having the body and our body literacy be always sexualized. Oh, I right? see. That makes sense. And and so to the extent that we as a society sexualize the nipple, there's right. a free the nipple hashtag. And of course, sexualized the process of giving birth. I think also there's probably, I haven't actually looked this up, but there's probably a double standard with regard to photos of natural birth, meaning vaginal birth, mm -hmm. versus cesareans. So both of them are giving birth, but I bet you the natural birth through the vaginal canal is considered uh, something that needs to be censored on social media. But if somehow if there's a picture of a cesarean, yeah. it's probably not going to be. I haven't looked that up. I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. That's a good question to, that's something to research. Um, our society is uh, really particular about things like that. And, and I don't really understand why. Like, in it's some, at certain places, it's become a joke. Like, well, if you take a picture of a naked woman, but you get rid of the her nipple, and then you put a male nipple instead, does that make it any better? So it's, I've never heard of that joke. And what were some of the common responses to that well, question? The, depending on the website, if, if you start with a joke, people will keep on uh, pushing further and then just 
making these memes out of it and just joking further. But it's sometimes really absurd the way we we put these laws to censor. Which is why I think Professor Spring Cooper's research is so important. Mm-hmm. She is an expert in adolescent health and sexuality, and she's doing research to assess how the impact of sexual literacy and sexual agency will have on someone's sexual health. So sexual agency is something that we spoke about, but what I found out in the notes later, it it gives uh, more detail on what sexual agency actually is. So to quickly go over it, it is the ability to, four things basically, the ability to define yourself uh, sexually, whether you are um, homosexual or heterosexual and where along on the spectrum you're at. Um, the other thing is the ability to choose whether or not you want to experience sexual activity, the ability to choose how you want to engage in sexual activity, and uh, the ability to stop and engage engaging in sexual activity act that is no longer warranted. So those are extremely important things uh, that especially people in CUNY or young people should be aware of. There is a podcast that uh, hopefully we'll link to your notes. It's a podcast that talks about consent and how important it is for not just youth, but any woman uh, to understand because there are certain taboos or myths or or fears that people have around sex and things like stopping sex or times where women feel like they're forced or they're obligated by society to have sex, or I, I think it's one of those podcasts that would probably supplement this 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 whole teaching about sexual agency. Well, in addition to Professor Cooper, has her own podcast called The Sex Rap. Ah, right. And that that's a a podcast that basically crowdsources all the questions, where every episode is an answer to a question that the audience uh, or listeners pose, and. It's geared towards people of every age. But I think to your point about consent, I think cons- definitely consent is part of the conversation that she wants people to feel comfortable in when you know what, when you have sexual agency and you know what you want and you know what makes you feel comfortable and safe right. and what makes you not feel that way. Exactly. And being able to assert that in a relationship safely is the key because like you were saying sexual coercion where you're feeling like you don't have a choice that's not consent or if there's some negative consequence to you emotionally or verbally later possibly even physically later that's not consent and if there's no consent and there's fear or intimidation involved then how can that be pleasurable for both people absolutely and communication is so important in this because on both parts, extremely important because you have to, let's say the person who is the potential perpetrator could probably be able to to ask questions and assess the situation better so they wouldn't have to put their partner in that uncomfortable situation because everybody is different. While some women feel more comfortable with certain things in, in certain situations, other women wouldn't. And I, I believe that and I, I say more men because it just happens with more men. More men are probably don't care about that. And so then it, they just they just go like, well, you know, I did this before. So what's the big deal if I if do it again or, or do it with this woman? It's not it's not consensual because they don't understand 
where the woman is at. Yeah, and I think the impact of not having a feeling of safety in your relationship, emotional safety, really has a you know negative impact in especially these students' lives. You were talking about CUNY, the City University of New York. So we talked about a study with Dr. Cooper about how being victim of domestic violence or intimate partner violence or being sexually coerced in this survey can make you late for school, can make you not want to go to school at all, can make you want to withdraw, can make you hand in assignments late. All of these things were part of the survey of these college students in New York City. And in, and if you don't have the language to be able to assert your thought and choice and in a relationship, right? right? Then you don't have the language to assess whether you're in a bad situation or unsafe situation, and you won't be able to properly diagnose, so to speak, in air quotes, right? Right. Uh, wh- whether you're you're in danger. Right, right. So that's what the uh, Healthy Community, uh, sorry, Healthy CUNY initiative is about. And I, I'm glad that it's not just uh, with the staff. I, I believe they do have uh, input from the students and, and um, the whole faculty to hopefully address this and hopefully get the people who, students who start school there to be better informed after they leave. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing about the Healthy CUNY initiative that was really important to emphasize and share is that being healthy as an individual, in particular with the, with this population, it's undergraduate students at a public urban university, is a function of so many different things that are not just academic, and that the health of that student is so closely tied to that student's ability to be able to perform well in school and to be engaged and to persist. And so some of those factors included having housing stability, economic stability, having access to food, and of course, you know, whether or not they were being exposed to an intimate partner violence situation. Absolutely. And if the goal of uh, CUNY is to graduate students and make sure that they're successful, then it's important to address all of these barriers, because that's how they were going to get through it. In your experience, Michael, as uh, someone who works with young people who are in New York City, what, what have you found with regard to the access that the young people you have had, uh, that you've been exposed to, have with regard to sexual agency? So because I believe that um, a lot of the population that I work with have been out of school for some time and they haven't had the opportunity to address these these issues. Programs like uh, the Intern and Earn program and others are designed to hopefully address a lot of these issues. It's, 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 I think it's very, very, very rampant. I would say, I would call it ignorance of, of um, these issues to the point where when we talk about uh, let's say, uh, sexual harassment in the workplace, there are many, many students who still believe that, oh, well, the reason that she got raped was because she was dressed inappropriately or or like, you know, it's kind of her fault because she really, you know, she was kind of asking for it by what she was wearing. So like these kind of statements are still prevalent in, in this population a lot of times. So luckily we do get to address those particular statements, but it's still there. So you're saying that the the young people that you work with 
uh, subscribe to these basically rape myths or gender myths. Some of them do. I'm not going to say all of them. Is it does it is there a divide by gender? Is it more girl, more women than men who feel that way, or is it pretty evenly split? Uh, I think it's evenly split because even though a male may say that, to me, I think it it seems it's more of a male thing. But there are women who also agree with these statements. It's very hard to tell because this is a really informal kind of poll where I just throw out a statement out there and is it. Like, hey, is this true or false? And so then there are a few people who are vocal out there and say, well, you know, they'll they'll support some sort of rape myth. And maybe a few others uh, pointed out, believe the majority of people do understand that that is a rape myth. And it's something that while we address as a whole, it's very informal to get numbers, but usually that's my experience. So when you're actually debunking these myths, you're finding that there's they seem to be open with new information that you're presenting. I would say yes. I would say for the most part, yes. But there are people who just don't pay as much attention to this as possible. And I think it's why it's important to really address these issues in, in school and not, and not just these programs, but in, in regular school. And is there any kind of correlation between those students who are not responding positively to these facts when you give them that in terms of the choices they make in their individual lives? Like if you give them information, for example, around sexual agency and the female body, let's say there's some anatomy information or access to healthcare, do they use that information to make informed choices or do they not make informed choices because they haven't had enough access to it or whatever other reason? So I, I think it really depends on the individual, but I do feel that there is a correlation between people who, who are unaware of these things and people who sometimes are perpetrators of, of, of certain behaviors that are unlawful in the workplace. And, and that so sexual just, harassment, you're sexual saying? Sexual harassment, yes. Yeah, specifically sexual harassment, right? So I had this, this situation where this young person wasn't, wasn't aware of the sexual harassment policy and he happened to sexually harass uh, another student in the same place. And I feel if it was addressed before, I don't think it would have happened. But I don't know. I really don't know. And again, that's a one case kind of, I can't really speak to the statistics on this, which I think would hopefully clarify better, but that's my hunch. To be fair, being culturally aware and understanding consent and respect and and boundaries and all of these things, it, it's a process, right? It's undoing culture. So it doesn't just happen, happen with just one lesson, right? So it has to be an ongoing conversation, which I'm hoping you're having regularly. Right. That's something that really is, is being addressed because I'm not in that particular program anymore. Um, but it, it, it is an issue and a concern that has been addressed to the program. And so uh, I, I do believe that they're taking steps towards correcting that. So our next episode is with Georgie Barden, uh, who's founder of a company called Fertility for Me, basically a concierge service for women who are experiencing fertility challenges, infertility, and who need help to get pregnant. Right. Um, so there are... There, there, it's, 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 a, it's more another one of the topics where... Um, I did learn a lot through uh, understanding um, things about fertility because it's not a subject that I 
showed particular interest before this 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 podcast, but I I, I did learn a lot about it. Uh, from the very beginning, you spoke about gluten and how that may be uh, that that may uh, affect a, a person's uh, ability to be fertile. Um, but you you kind of challenged the idea that maybe it isn't gluten itself. Maybe it's the pesticides that um, that the crops are exposed to that cause the allergic reaction or any reaction that, that affects um, fertility. So to be clear, you're saying that when Georgie and I talked about how she is prohibited from consuming gluten because it has a negative impact on her fertility, mm-hmm. we explored the possibility that it wasn't necessarily gluten itself that caused infertility, but potentially pesticides, because there have been studies that say that the um, celiac disease is is basically disease where you're allergic to gluten and you can't process. And that celiac really isn't, it's not celiac in itself, but that it's pesticides. Right, it's the pesticides that are used on the crops. And gluten is in so many things, from breads to pastas, it's, it, it's that binding chemical that makes everything consistent. And it's in so many places. And since uh, the United States consistently has to uh, use pesticides to mass produce these products, that's why it would make sense that it, it could be that. Yeah. And I think also, it just since you're on that example, Georgie also mentioned how there was some example of how she has friends who, when they were in Europe, they're eating gluten, they're eating bread, and they're not getting the same negative reaction as they are when they're in the U.S. doing so. Absolutely. So that's strong evidence to suggest that it's uh, the, the pesticides in the United States that are being used, right? So if you go to a, another country where that's not the case and you don't have this allergy reaction, then that says something. What were your thoughts around just fertility in general as a concept for body literacy? Like why it's important for us uh, women and I guess their partners to care about fertility? If it's something that you are planning to do uh, and, and you're planning to have children, and I think that that happens with a lot of people and and as a natural process of their life and where they are to just understand the steps that you have to take in order to be fertile and be ready for have to have a family i think um i think in this situation she is a person that is financially stable and ready to have a child and it would make sense that she's looking to 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 get into this and because there's so many things that can go wrong and the percentage of uh, your ability to have babies does go down as you get older. And only when you're financially stable does it really make sense to, to have a child. Then it's extremely important to start at an early age to understand what are your options and what can you do when you get to that step. So I, it, whether you're young, it's important to, to know. And also when you are having that discussion with your partner, if that's what you choose to do. What were your thoughts about our conversation with regard to fertility being important for women as a choice in case they didn't want to have a partner, in case they wanted to parent on their own? Because finding a partner, a responsible, mature, healthy partner is so hard. It is. I can, I can only imagine. It's when it comes to even just dating in general with uh, people who are doing that, I can only imagine just because of the way society is, I think we talked about 
with Tom Digby and on how relationships are basically uh and, and we'll go into that in the next episode but um how relationships are basically doomed if we have these contradicting ways of treating a relationship or getting to that so to be yes, clear heterosexual relationships heterosexual relationships absolutely there are other options that um i believe uh, people should take into account i mean if a woman wants to have a child on her own and uh she she knows somebody who is willing to be the father and it's not necessarily something that you need to ha- be in a romantic relationship there's a way for you to be able to take care of a child and be financially stable without necessarily the relationship i think it's a, it's a great option for women who are willing to do that i think that's the controversial part of the conversation for many people listening who may not agree with the concept that women should be able to have children either on their own or without a partner um, that is a man. There's many people out there, this kind of speaks to a lot of the other episodes that we have around divorce and custody, that people believe that there should be a heterosexual couple, male and female, mother and father in every child's life. And that's why there's so much opposition to same-sex parenting. And Do you think that that may be perhaps the fact that there are societal norms and especially through religion that people feel like this is the norm and then this is this is what is what what has always happened before and this is something that should continue because it's 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 how i grew up and it's more of a traditional kind of thing where they think it's necessarily something that's logical right something that people feel like it worked before so let's continue doing it and the whole uh experiment with the rat where in order for the rat to get a particular treat, the experimenter had to make that rat learn to do something in order to get that. And he was, that rat was able to teach the other rats how to do that particular thing. Eventually, that stimulus was removed and they didn't need to perform that particular behavior in order to get that food, but they kept on doing it. And from generation through generation, after rats came and went, where the original rats that were taught this behavior really didn't like they didn't know the original rats there was just a whole bunch of rats that were continuing this behavior that didn't have any purpose to it so they weren't getting incentivized to engage in this behavior because they were getting the food either way exactly but they continued this behavior because it's i'm assuming it's it's something that they feel is tradition so then that this is something that they feel safe in so i i feel that a lot of times it's not just religion and it's people that feel that this is the way that people should be, quote unquote, normally raised. For me, I'm not sure. It's a chicken and egg situation. So I'm not sure if those norms were created out of tradition or if they were created to justify tradition. So in other words, did they were they created to engage in an ulterior motive of controlling the population and keeping the population and their be and its behavior within a you know circumscribed set of practices versus there were actually people who existed historically in these religions and these historical figures religious idols i guess were were the ones who dictated it and then the people kind of responded well i mean if we're looking back religion specifically because even now and i don't know every religion but i know let's say uh catholicism 
only only the men are the ones that are allowed to have, for the most part, positions of power, right? So if if they have these positions of power, and then they have, let's say, they get together with someone else, and it's because men are tend to have uh, more power than women, it seems that it would make sense to have a person to be the provider and have the other the woman who is the nurturing kind because that's just that's just how society build them up that's why their tradition makes sense because they feel like oh well one person provides while the other person do, do, does the nurturing i i think that's you you're saying that the division of labor came about through basically natural selection no 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 not necessarily natural selection i i well it was necessary to survive right but because of the way we built society that way. So, so you don't think that the division of labor by gender came about deliberately through patriarchal oppression, through men being stronger and wanting to dominate. And, and I guess in some ways it goes back to natural selection and they feeling like they need to have these roles and structures in place in order for human beings to continue to exist. I would say, yes, it may eventually, and in my opinion, it may eventually go back to natural selection, right? Because traditionally, uh, wasn't it that the male was the hunter, right? And the woman- the hunter-gatherer. And the hunter-gatherer, right? So if, if the male was going out there and, and doing like, I guess, the, the labor, the, the different kind of labor, right? The more dangerous type of labor, then maybe perhaps that, that, still, that same- the same traditional set of, of rules and, and that were put in place could continue to perpetuate throughout history. And even now, where that isn't as well defined, like you don't necessarily have to be big and strong in order to be a, 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 a hunter and, and, and provide food. You can, a woman can be a CEO. It's not necessarily something that holds true now, right? So, but it's still, it's perpetuated. Yeah. And I think that goes back to what you were saying about Tom Digby's conversation we had with Tom Digby in his book, Love and War, where his theory is that heterosexual relationships, the way it is traditionally defined, if both parties to that relationship are going to be adhering very strictly to the gendered roles that have been defined for them, that the relationship is ultimately doomed, like you said, Mm -hmm. the word you used, because, or set to fail, fail, because these roles are antagonistic to each part person being able to get what they need and what they want in the relationship. And so his response is we need to eliminate those gendered roles and really support the individual agency of both parties in a relationship right. to express who they are in their on their own terms. Absolutely. But in general, I, I yes, I do believe it's important for women to be able to be aware of their bodies, their fertility, and their choice, right? And speaking of choice, uh, recently there were laws passed in, in several uh, states speaking on abortion and uh, women's rights, which is something that unfortunately affects so many women. And when it comes to the woman's right to choose, it's unfair that women's bodies are being controlled by laws that in many cases, women who need an abortion will do it on their own and they may maybe do it in dangerous ways. And it's just unfortunate that they can't do it. They wouldn't be able to do it safely. So as a cisgendered heterosexual male, what is your opinion on reproductive choice for women? Who gets to decide 
Well, what I, should happen to women's bodies? I mean, I believe very strongly that it's the woman's choice to decide what it is that is best for her. It's it, it's so strange that some people, especially when it comes to let, let's say Republicans, that they feel that um, government shouldn't have uh, control of of what a person does or doesn't do. That they would force force women to choose not to have an abortion. Like it's something that. I do feel very strongly about. And when I do have conversations with people who I feel don't understand, maybe they think like, hey, abortion is wrong. But to them, right? If you feel abortion is wrong, why do they feel that it's important to control others, other people's choices? If, if you feel it's wrong, then keep it to you. You are affecting society in so many harmful ways. There's so many unintended consequences that people aren't paying attention to when it comes to abortion, like the ability to make sure that women uh, do perform a sa- pregnancy safely. Like if a baby is born, where are they going to uh, be able to be financially stable? How are they going to, how is the mother going to be able to provide for a child that is necessarily not necessarily wanted? A long time ago, I read Freakonomics. And it's, uh, for those of you who haven't read it, it's a fascinating book that talks, that specifically has a chapter on how the possibility that abortion and giving the women's right, the right to choose may affect crime rate. Because when there are children that are unwanted and are being born, they're more likely to create, to, to fall into crime and poverty. And that would probably increase, uh, increase harm for everybody, right? It's society in general. But if you are addressing these issues and you inform people and you let them know what is abortion, what is not, letting people know about the, the, the morning after pill, right? And a lot of people don't understand these things and it's important for, for people to be able to address these issues and, and hopefully help society as a whole. You said a lot of things, Michael, so I want to unpack some of it. One of it was the idea that women should have sovereignty over our own bodies and how lawmakers, policymakers are being hypocritical, I heard you say, because some of them who are making these decisions to restrict access to abortion are doing so when they're proposing for sovereignty in other areas, for example, with gun rights. So they may say everybody has a right to own a gun and nobody has, the government doesn't have a right to interfere with someone's decision to own a gun. But in this case, somehow they have a right to regulate a woman's body. Right. And then, of course, there's the hypocrisy around regulating men's bodies because nobody's regulating men's bodies. That's right. Yeah. And what's even more hypocritical, directly more obviously hypocritical, is a lot of these senators who uh, push for their, where they're cheating on their wives and then they tell their wives, they push for abortions on their lovers, on their girlfriends, while at the same time advocating for these abortion bills. Mm, Yeah. And then I think to sort of emphasize even more is the idea that um, many of them know that it's illegal what they're doing because it's challenging Roe versus Wade, but they don't care because it's a political tactic to actually get these cases up to the Supreme Court to be reconsidered. And given last week, 
I believe it was Monday, there was a Supreme Court case that came out that was very significant because it actually challenged the concept of precedent. And so Justice Kennedy was the one who wrote the dissent uh, on the case, and, and he basically was, was uh, ringing an alarm bell to all of us in his dissent, pointing out that the decision had nothing to do with legal um, merit, but it was more based on the 5-4 majority in the court, which is political. And the fact that they're going to be getting rid of, or in this particular Supreme Court case, not giving weight to precedent in law, which is such a key component of setting law, is very disturbing because then there is no basis for any law. Anybody can come up with anything one day, one thing, the next day, another. And the rationale could be completely the opposite, inconsistent. And it'll really give us as a society, as citizens, no stability or ability to predict what is unifying in terms of our morality and what should be guiding us and our behaviors in our goals and our vision of what we want our society to look like. Right, right. And um, and hopefully with people voting more in the upcoming elections, who knows if that'll change, but the ability to, to actually change the way laws are made would probably uh, be more harmful in the long run, no matter what happens moving forward. So um, yeah, we're living in dangerous times. Well, our final conversation, which I thought was very hopeful on body literacy was with Nicole Perry, a feminist therapist that works in Edmonton, Canada. What were your thoughts about her characterization of what being a feminist therapist means and how you think that might help people who are clients of hers. Putting uh, feminism in the forefront in her therapy sessions uh, seems like a great idea, I think. Uh, the more people are, that, that are informed about feminism, the better it would be and, and would be able to help the, the individuals, both in, uh, individually and I believe she also talks about couples therapy. So that's, that's something I think to be celebrated. She says she gets a lot of clients that have that already feminists and they already they already understand it and and do understand and see why it would make sense for them to have this as part of their therapy. But I, I believe that it's extremely important to educate people who aren't so aware of this. Yeah, I think the, the approach that she has that I think is different from a lot of other therapists by being a feminist therapist, the way she characterized it was. She um, contextualizes the experiences and feelings of her clients in a way that helps them understand the larger systemic forces that shape those experiences and feelings. Absolutely, especially in cases where she's maybe dealing with uh, domestic violence, right, and safety issues. It's so extremely important to learn to learn about that. Um, you also brought up the Tom Digby here, talking about how uh, you, you questioned, well, if you're doing couples therapist, is it is is it ultimately set up to fail? Which she she did answer that by stating that it's you brought up Tom Digby talking about how it it may be possible that uh, relationships in general, the heterosexual relationships, may be doomed uh, from the beginning unless you take into consideration the fact that women and men and this and feminism should be taken into account, right? Because there are men and women are brought up in ways that 
are incompatible with each other. Well, I think I just want to, if if I recall correctly, I, I don't want, I wouldn't want to characterize it in that way. I think what I said was that if there were couples who were in couples therapy, where one person had a consciousness that the other person didn't have about the larger social issues that impacted their behaviors, that imbalance in consciousness is going to be a challenge for the relationship to be able to continue and that it required and that heterosexual relationships they aren't doomed to the extent that they all they're only doomed if there's an imbalance in consciousness so if you have both parties who are let's say very willing to engage in traditional gender norms and one let's say the woman the wife wants to stay at home and take care of the kids and there's no problem with that and the man in the relationship is the one who's the quote unquote traditional bread earner, that's fine as long as both people adhere to that. But then if, if it gets disrupted somehow, if there's some level of, let's say, feminist awakening in the woman and she starts asserting herself, you know, she starts going out and wearing a pink hat and going in marches and fighting for reproductive justice, that might be something that would disrupt the balance of the relationship. And so that's what I mean by the consciousness, right? You have this imbalance. So most people, if they're adhering to those norms, it works just fine because they're both agreeing to perform those behaviors and their roles. If there's an awakening, in a, in a, so to speak, where women, because of feminism and other um, movements, are helping us become aware of the ways in which our laws and policies and our systems actually are restricting our freedoms and we speak out against it in our in, in interpersonal relationships and our partner hasn't that level same level of consciousness, then that's the problem. So to clarify, you're saying that if a woman um follows the what the norms that you're saying are both like, parties example, follow the norms. Right, right, right. In other words, the man has to be dominant and the woman has to be submissive. Right. Okay. Then that that then then they would work. Okay. Right. So he, what he was saying is that in his book Tom Digby is that men are basically through this goes back to your comment about history and religion. You know that men are raised to be warriors and how you are as a warrior and what you how you're rewarded and reinforced those behaviors of dominance and using violence and aggression um they're not compatible with the nurturing uh, way that a woman is raised to make sure that you're taking care of the next person as opposed to uh, competing. Right. So if at some point the woman feels like, oh, how come I'm doing all the caretaking and I want to be taken care of as well, then the heterosexual male in that relationship won't have the means or the tools to be able to respond effectively Right. because he wasn't raised to be that. Right. And so what Tom says in his book and in our interview is that we need feminism so that we could all be set free and not adhere to those roles. To those traditional gender roles, right. That, that, that makes sense. Another thing that she mentioned or that you mentioned to her was the conflict of interest that may happen if there is one therapist that treats both the individual and the couple at the same time. And I personally have gone through a situation like that. 
And during the time, I really wasn't aware that it was a conflict of interest. You know, I thought, hey, you know, it's uh, I feel comfortable with this therapist. And I feel like in the couples therapy, both come to both ways. But it now looking back at it, it's really obvious that, of course, it's a conflict of interest because the individuals, what's best for the individual may not necessarily be what's best for the couple. It's the same analogy, a a similar analogy I would use is can't represent as an attorney. You can't be both the prosecutor and the lawyer representing the defendant. So that's basically the, the analogy that you, that's a conflict of interest. You're either trying to get the person convicted or you're trying to keep them from getting convicted. Right. Yeah, it works the same way. Yeah, it, it's different because it's couples and, and individuals, but it's the same in, in terms of what the interests are. You can't honestly, you can't honestly make sure that the individual is taken care of and they know what's best for them when you you're dealing with them as a couple at the same time. Just to clarify for our listeners, the example that Nicole brought up was that if someone was an unsafe situation, was in an intimate partner violence relationship. And it's best for, let's say, the woman to leave. As a couples therapist, your goal is not to help end the relationship. Your goal is to help them resolve their differences. And that would go against advocating for the woman to leave. Or not advocating, but giving her tools to have the awareness that maybe leaving is better for her. Absolutely. So that's very tricky. Um, And of course, every situation is really different. You have to, uh, in general, I think that that's that's something that all therapists should be aware of. And hopefully, hopefully therapists do listen to podcasts or become more informed about things like this and, and take that into consideration. I think that this is something that is very rarely a, a, a breach in real life for a couple, for a, someone. I would think so too. I mean, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but I'm it, curious, like, did, didn't anybody tell you that that was a, an ethical violation? When you were seeing your couple's time, therapist and a person um, seeing that therapist? Personally, you are the only one who told me who mentioned like, wait a minute. And to you, it's it was very obvious, but to me at the time, it wasn't. So, but nobody else in your life. Nope, nobody. And then, did you ever bring it up to this person, this therapist? No, I I, I, let him know or her know that this was ethically questionable behavior. I mean, uh, that was a very long time ago. So, uh, I, and I don't maintain contact with that therapist anymore. But you never brought it up. I never brought okay. it up. Okay. I mean, I think it's important for people to um, be, be informed mm-hmm. so that they, they cannot commit the harm on other people. Right. That makes then sense. there's no accountability. Like, it's almost like being a victim of a crime and not reporting it. And then that person who's like, perpetrator of the crime gets to do it over and over again right until somebody actually addresses it so it's important yeah. for it to be addressed as early as possible you're right but i'm, I'm glad that you now have the awareness Michael, <laughs> and the conversation with with nicole perry reinforced that absolutely um so you're saying that that's a rare occurrence you've never seen that happen in any other situation or well there are many 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 no, that you're Ethic, aware of. Ethical violations oh. that happen in our divorce and custody mm-hmm. cases where forensic evaluators who are supposed to act in one way take on a dual role. So maybe maybe they're supposed to supervise visitation and just make sure that all parties are safe. And instead of doing that, they're taking on the additional role of being a forensic evaluator. So you can't take on both. 
You right. can, you know, you're either choosing to say whether someone should be safe is safe, um, but then you can't make a dis- determination to say, well, and I think that these are the circumstances by which the quantity and quality of the engagement and communication should be adhered to or, or circumscribed by. And so in that case, like you have to actually engage in a certain set of practices to do the forensic evaluation, just observing people in a supervised visitation context is not sufficient. And many, many protective parents that I know, usually protective moms, have been in that situation where people have had a dual role, which is against the ethical standards, and they've gotten away with it. Oh, so, all right. So that wasn't, uh, so that does happen in other ways in custody. Uh, situations. Yeah. But there's, there's, that's, as you know, from our episodes on custody and and divorce and custody, rather, it's like the wild west. There's no accountability in any of those people's systems at all. Because the way the system is built there, there's no accountability. Nobody's actually investigating them properly, um, making sure that if they're on a list. Or vetting them. Yeah, they should be vetted. None none of that. In fact, I saw recently a list where someone who was a known father's rights activist who didn't believe ab- abuse, doesn't believe abuse when it, when survivors Sick. disclose, was still on a list. Oh, that is just awful. Okay, so these are issues that continuously are happening, and so hopefully we can bring awareness to them. Which is why, going back to the accountability part, I think we all need to, to when we're ready, to have those conversations so with ourselves. And with maybe those people so that we can hold them accountable. It makes sense. You're right. That's something that I have to bring up. All right. Well, thank you, Michael, for this very engaging conversation today on body literacy. And until next time. Thank you, Terry. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.